0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: Got
2: anything? Not much. She's German.
1: Rache German
2: for revenge. She could be trying to tell oh, yes, us something. Yes, thank you for your input.
1: So
0: she's German?
2: Of course she's not. She's from out of town, though. Intended to stay in London for one night before returning home to Cardiff. So far, so obvious. Sorry, obvious? But what about the message? Though? Dr. Watson, what do you think? Of the message? Of the body, you're a medical man. Well, no, we have a whole team outside. They won't work with me. I'm breaking every rule letting you in here. Yes, because you need me. Yes, I do. God help me.
0: Dr. Watson. I hope he says, help yourself. Anderson, oh. keep everyone out for a couple of minutes. What am I doing here? Helping me make a point. I'm supposed to be helping you pay the rent. Well, this is more fun. Fun? There's a woman lying dead. Perfectly sound analysis, but I was hoping you'd go deeper.
1: Good morning, London. It's Thursday, February 20th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be all... And 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to reach us or write us at feedback at org. And today on our slate of subjects to discuss, I understand in the second half of the show, we'll be talking about the Olympics. Is that correct, Robert?
3: As much as I know about it, which isn't very much, but yes.
1: <laughs> well, we're going to learn what you don't know then, I guess, in the second half of the show. Oh, well, you better have set aside a lot of time, because I don't know a lot. <laughs> now, for the first half of the show, if you heard our opener, you know I'm a real sucker for just about any, any Sherlock Holmes scenarios and interpretations. I, I really like them all. I enjoyed all the movies. I hold a special regard for Jeremy Brett's interpretation of Holmes and the adventures mm-hmm. of Sherlock Holmes. But by no means does this diminish my enjoyment of the other Holmes' interpretations. Our opener this morning was from the latest British incarnation called, just simply, Sherlock, which you put me onto, Robert. I just started watching it recently. Oh, the British one with Cumberbatch, yes. Correct. Now, of course, the first one that you and I liked so much was Jeremy Brett's. You know that ran for 10 years, from April 1984 to um, November 1994? 45 episodes. I do. I've got them all. I do, too. I didn't realize that oh, they ran over such a long period of time. I thought it was a shorter period. With Jeremy Brett as Sherlock Holmes, of course, David Burke as John Watson, and Edward Hardwick as John Watson. Mm-hmm. I, I watched that whole series all the way through before I realized they had two different actors playing Watson. I think I mentioned it to you. You mentioned it to me, <laughs> and I had to watch it again to make sure that I was seeing it correctly. And then, of course, there's the, the, the new British Sherlock, Nine episodes over the past three years, starring Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock Holmes, Martin Freeman as Dr. John Watson. And Bilbo Baggins. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, then there's the other show, Elementary, that I really like very much, with Johnny Lee Miller as Sherlock Holmes. He's completely manic in that show. And Lucy Liu as Dr. Joan Watson. Now, I really hate to lose the opportunity to watch all of these marvelous stories and interpretations that are based on the original Arthur Conan Doyle character, which is why a particular copyright court case going on in Chicago may affect our ability to do so. You heard about this? Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But for those who don't know or aren't certain, you know uh, S- Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was the person who, of course, wrote all the er, original Sherlock Holmes stories. A British novelist, nephew of Richard Doyle, born in Edinburgh, Scotland, May 22nd, 1859. He was educated at the Roman Catholic College at Stonyhurst Lancashire at the University of Edinburgh and where he graduated as a doctor of medicine. After serving as a physician in the Boer War, he began his writing career with the Great Boer War and the cause and conflict of the war in 1900. He immortalized his fictional character Sherlock Holmes in The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes, Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, The Hound of the Baskervilles, and many other short stories. Taking up the study of spiritualism late in his life, he wrote History of Spiritualism and Other Works, and he died in 1930. So this leaves a history of his stories, and as what has happened now, According to this article that appeared in uh, the National Post, January 4th, by Jason Kaiser, the not so elementary case of Sherlock Holmes. Copyright on Doyle's work expires. And this is interesting. The question asks Are writers free to depict Sherlock Holmes in new mysteries without seeking permission or paying license fees now that copyright protections have expired on nearly all of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's tales about the pipe puffing detective? A federal judge in Chicago says yes, so long as they don't stray into territory covered in the first ten stories, still, pr- in, in, in the 10 stories co- still protected by copyright. Now at the heart of the dispute is whether a character can be copy protected over an entire series of works. Descendants of the Scottish physician and author argue he continued to develop the characters of Holmes and Dr. Watson in the later works. So they should remain off-limits until the remaining copyrights run out at the end of 2022. It's a bogus argument. It means you can reprint Conan Doyle's own stories freely, but you can't make up a new story. It doesn't make logical sense, said author Leslie Klinger, who brought the case against the Conan Doyle estate to settle the matter. The Doyle estate argues that a basic element of copyright law allows for that if the character is highly delineated as opposed to a two-dimensional cartoon-like character who doesn't change much over time, that that gives them a special status. In ruling against the estate, Judge Ruben Castillo called that a novel legal argument that was counter to the goals of the Copyright Act. There's no question that Holmes and Watson are highly complex characters. Conan Doyle produced a total of four Sherlock Holmes novels and 56 stories between 1887 and 1927. Mr. Klinger argues that everything you really need to know about Holmes and Watson is in the novels and stories published before 1923 that are in the public domain in the U.S. That includes their family backgrounds, education, and a slew of character traits. Holmes' bohemian nature and cocaine use, erratic eating habits, his Baker Street lodgings, his methods of reasoning, his clever use of disguise, his skill in chemistry, and even his weapon of choice, a loaded hunting crop. The other ten stories have new biographical footnotes, including a mention that Watson had a second wife and played rugby in his youth. But the Doyle estate says there are other significant elements in those later stories, such as Holmes' mellowing personality and the shift in Holmes and Watson's relationships from flatmates and collaborators to closest friends. Thus, to depict Holmes and Watson based only on parts of the canon that predate 1923 would be something of an artistic crime and ignore the extent to which the characters continue to evolve, said Doyle lawyer Mr. Zieski. I think it does literature a great disservice, he says. What do you think of that argument? I, th- I agree with the judge. I think
3: that the elements that Conan Doyle uh, put into the character after 23 are still under copyright.
1: Also, you're saying with which you're agreeing. You say they are under a copyright. Well, I agree with the judge in that, um, for example,
3: uh, his second wife, um, Watson's second wife, for example, Mm -hmm. that element should not be put into any new story regarding uh, Holmes and Watson because Conan Doyle created that element of the character, um, and that's still
1: under uh, copyright. Well, you might be correct there. You know, I'm looking at another report here. This one's from. two days earlier before the one I just read from the National Post. This is from the Chicago Sun-Times, which is the city where this case was taking place. And uh, according to the decision there, only, there only the more pickyune details of Holmes' world, such as Dr. Watson's second wife and past as a rugby player, which were created in the last year, eight years of Conan Doyle's life, remain off-limits until 2023 when that does expire. So I guess you might uh, be in, in agreement with that, Judge. You're right. I, I do. I agree with him. And uh, it's still under appeal though, and uh, what's interesting is that they're talking about the complexity of these characters. I was almost thinking... If the issue is the fact that he's a two di- or three-dimensional character, if this was comic book terms, would that mean that the old DC comic characters, Batman and Superman, those two-dimensional ones, wouldn't have competed with the Marvel characters when when they came out in the '60s? You know, and those have all been developed totally differently mm-hmm. since, with various interpretations in the movies. I think the the intent of copyright is to protect
3: your creative work. Now, there's the work. It, go, it goes into creating a character, and then there's the work that goes into developing that, that character over time. To say that yes, I'm going to copy your character, and I'm also going to copy what you just wrote about him, or, or more recently wrote about him, that I think is going a little too far. Sure, you can copyright the uh, copy the character, but not the elements that progress over
1: time that are still under copyright. That's my point. Now, of view. Now, you're you're a fan of the current Sherlock Holmes show that's going. Oh, very right much now. so. Yes. Um, would you say they've violated any sort of copyright in that regard, or do you think they're doing? The right I've thing read
3: all of, I've read the canon, I've read every single um, uh, Arthur Doyle uh, Sherlock Holmes. I have that all, uh, and I've seen all of the Brett ones many times over. I've seen everything that I can find on Sherlock Holmes, and I don't know, because again, it's such a complex character. This is a very interesting copyright case because you have a complex character. With many um, personality traits and many historical elements given to the character, developing over time, so I couldn't tell you whether or not uh, uh, Watson's second wife was uh, (laughs) before 23 or after 23. I leave that to the lawyers. I'm just entertained by Cumberbatch and Freeman right at the moment.
1: Well, what makes these characters interesting to me? You know, I, I always find everything by Arthur Conan Doyle fascinating. Like. All of the um, Sherlock Holmes interpretations have been interesting to me. I've, I just like them, no matter who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with um, <coughs> also related to Arthur Conan Doyle are the uh, the Lost World series. Yes, you yeah. know the, the the television series and the various movies. I've I've got a collection of them, and I like them all, even the ones that aren't that well made. Just something intrinsic about his stories that um, just appeals so universally.
3: Well, I hope I'm not going to jump the gun on what you have to say further on, but what appeals to me is that he writes about the competent man. I talked about this Mm. on a previous show when we talked about um, James Bond. That's the appeal of that character. By the way, that one's coming up for copyright,
1: (laughs) end of copyright soon as well. How interesting you say that, because that's (laughs) part of uh, the concern that that, that this case might have in the future, Mm -hmm. when copyrights of that nature begin to run out. Now, of course, there's a whole other element Pardon, upon to uh, the whole Sherlock Holmes series, and that is the character himself, the stories, the philosophy on which he operates, and that's one of the things that I find appealing about the show. So, what I've done here, what we, what I want to do in the next quarter is discuss the, the philosophy of Sherlock Holmes and, and uh, particularly the one from the series Elementary, which I've just recently started watching. Now, many people might conclude given the content of the following audio bites that you're about to hear that i would not like the sherlock holmes show elementary from which they've been selected especially given that ayn rand insult that you told me about mm-hmm. <laughs> in fact that was the thing that attracted me to the show when you told me about that i said i gotta find out what he, what, what he says about ayn rand and why but i really do love this show and would recommend it to anyone it's a fun ride Intelligently written, great stories, great characters in both Holmes and Watton, Watson, more about that later, etc., etc. And the big but, the show has some elementary philosophical contradictions and misunderstandings that are shared by so many people that it's a rare opportunity to place them under the microscope for cl- closer examination. So I've done something a little bit different here. I have selected six unrelated to each other conversations from the series, unrelated in terms of the plots and episodes from which they were drawn, but very related to each other in terms of their philosophy and their sense of life. In the way I've arranged them here, Robert, the first three audio selections on this side of the bumper all express some element, I think, uh, maybe the best word to use is moral relativism, would that be the word? though even here, with some contradictions involved. And, uh, and all that's topped off with that apparent rejection of Ayn Rand. And then the three audio selections on the other side of the bumper seem to reveal a Sherlock character who's very much like Ayn Rand in more ways than he might care to admit. So listen carefully, because this is what we'll be talking about when we return. I was shocked when I heard the news. I, I still don't believe it. I can't deny what I'm hearing in the press
2: about Donald, but he was my friend. He donated his services free of charge as this council CPA. And as for our investments, the council never lost a dime. Every penny has already been accounted for.
4: Can you think of why he might have left the council
2: alone? Maybe as he was stealing from others, he saw his work for us as a kind of karmic counterbalance, a way to do some good to make up for the bad. Whatever the reason, I'm grateful.
4: So Donald Hauser was a swindler with a heart of gold.
2: Very few of us are either completely
0: good or completely evil. It would appear that even Hauser had a moral line that he would not cross. Oh, you're upset with me.
4: You know, for a genius, you can be a real nimrod. You know that I have to testify tomorrow, right? Which means I get to lie under oath about puppies and, and wide open doors and- It a
0: problem uh, if we stick to our story, there's nothing they can do.
4: Well, if, if you bothered to come up with a better story, it wouldn't be so obvious that we were lying. You're practically daring them to fire us.
0: You think I'm letting my ego play too big a role in this affair?
4: This is not about your ego. I know that we color outside the lines a lot, but this time Bell got shot. Doesn't that give you pause about how we do our jobs? No. Why not?
0: Why do we get to be above the rules? Because our methods work. And I'm comfortable that our actions are guided by a morality which supersedes any clumsy employee manual. The danger with rule books, Watson, is that they offer the illusion that leading a moral life is a simple undertaking. That the world exists in black and white. Welcome to the Greys!
4: Kleinfeldtarianism. Catchy name. Turns out that most of Ezra's thoughts on a broken world have to do with how he can't get a date with his neighbor. That, and a bunch of Ayn Rand quotes.
0: Philosopher-in-chief to the intellectually bankrupt.
4: Oh, my God. Spotless.
0: Don't hate me.
4: Hate you? I love you.
0: How's it arranged? A subject matter, then by author. You start with hard sciences on the north wall, and then you move clockwise around the room in descending order of academic rigor. That way, Uh, Physics by Aristotle is as far away from You Can Learn Telepathy by Morton Zuckerman as possible. That's reasonable.
2: Emmy thinks there's some epithelial cells on Turner's back and at the dinosaur remains, so it looks like we got the killer's DNA.
0: This person murders Malcolm Turner and then takes the time to willfully destroy a fossil worth millions of dollars. Why would anyone do that?
4: Maybe it was one of Turner's competitors
0: but I can't see why anyone familiar with the invisible hand of the market would destroy something, obliterate something of such value. there's an interesting motive hidden here somewhere. We just need to root it out. Any luck?
4: Aside from getting a masterclass and the difference between a switch and a fakie, no. No one walking by jumped out as suspicious. How was the meeting?
0: Probably quite good. I will never know, because as soon as I got to Alfredo's, I was the victim of an ambush.
4: What are you talking about
0: he expressed his opinion that it was time i became a sponsor
4: oh and what did you say
0: i told him my life was not conducive to making myself available every time someone else was in crisis
4: you do get that no one's life is right
1: (laughs) i just love this show in those conversations there's a good chemistry there yeah you know lucy Lou has to play the straight role in this and i think she does a great job and and more than two or three people have told me You know, they've been avoiding trying to watch elementary because they don't like Lucy Liu. I don't really understand that, but I think they might have just had a bad Charlie's Angels experience or something. (laughs) I don't know what would have caused that. There's
3: one element missing from this Watson. Um, What's
1: that? Well, the Watson
3: of the canon from Conan Doyle um, was, as he called him, his Boswell. Uh, who's uh, an autobiographer, a person who is, not an autobiographer, a biographer who's uh, making the world aware of what he's doing. Mm -hmm. This Joan Watson, um, her role isn't doing that. Her role is to guide him from his addiction.
1: Yes, she was more hired on as his addiction counselor, in fact, right? And uh, it developed into something else. I think it develops more into the traditional Watson character as time goes on. But in in those particular audio bites we just selected there, I think we see a few philosophical contradictions. In the first one on the previous side of the bumper, we hear them speaking about a fellow named Donald Hauser, who apparently was a swindler with a heart of gold, says Lucy Liu's character Watson. Very few of us are completely good or completely evil. Even Hauser has a moral line he would not cross, repeats or returns uh, uh, Sherlock Well, I'm sorry, Hauser is evil, (laughs) period. The the fact that every criminal and crook happens not to behave immorally from time to time does not qualify for some kind of -of middle-of-the-road judgment on morality, does it? The fact that our politicians give away the money they might steal from us legally doesn't make them moral because they give the money away. If you're stealing from someone, you're willing to take something from them without their consent, and that's the premise of immorality. You know, let's face it, sex with with consent is sex. Sex without consent is called rape. Morally that's a black and white issue. However, what's not black and white are the non moral issues, like the evidence itself, the metaphysics of the situation. That's where the so called grays come into the picture, and that's what I think Sherlock is really talking about. I think he's getting really confused between philosophy and morality and evidence and knowing what is real. In, in terms of your ability to observe. If you witness a crime yourself and you trust your senses and you trust your reason then there's no gray involved in your mind as to whether something, you know, somebody did something quote wrong or not. You can morally judge without fear of error. If you don't trust your senses or aren't reasonable even if you witness a crime you're no longer in a clear position to morally judge. How can you know if what you saw was really a crime? Maybe the person murdering someone else was really acting in self-defense. Maybe you hate the victim and like the perpetrator, and doubt grays the clarity of your judgment. Those are the things I think that Sherlock is talking about, and they're not the things that Ayn Rand talks about. But morality itself, being an abstract principle, is always a completely black and white issue, and that's what Ayn Rand talks about. Not what Sherlock talks about. You see the difference just on that point? And then in this other scenario, the second one, Watson says, well, you're asking me to lie. Why do we get to be above the rules, she asked. First of all, yes, they were, quote, lying, but they were lying, you know, for a moral and good purpose, right? They were trying to do, they were protecting (coughs) the truth. And, uh, yeah, we've all got cold here, eh? <laughs> Sorry, yes. <laughs> uh, but he replies, the reason we get to break the rules or be above the rules is, quote, because our methods work. And I'm comfortable that our actions are guided by a morality that supersedes any clumsy employee manual, he says. The problem with rule books is that they offer an illusion that leading a moral life is a simple undertaking, that the world exists in black and white. Welcome to the grays, he said. Now... I don't know if you remember, but we actually broadcast a whole show on this very theme, in which I basically argued that rules are made to be broken, but principles cannot be broken. A rule is often, you know, just a, a substitute for a principle, and it's only a short term one. It's often just a crutch to rely on when the principle to be applied may not be so clear, or when the rule itself is in direct opposition to the principle. So the philosophy of, quote, our methods work. You know, you know what the name of that is? It works. If it works, there's a name for that philosophy. What is it? Pragmatism. Oh, yes. Right? <laughs> and
3: I thought there was a trick
1: question. No, there it wasn't a trick. It was straightforward. <laughs> you know, he, he's sitting here while he's not being philosophical or anything. Yes, he is. And that's known as pragmatism. And pragmatism does not work towards any moral end. Pragmatism is not about morality. It's about getting around morality. When your moral code contradicts your whim or your unjustified desire or goal, and that's when you become pragmatic. Well, you know, let's do this because we know it's wrong, but we're going to do it anyway, you know, that kind of thing. So the the fundamental error here is the assumption that the so-called police rules of investigation are a moral code of some sort. They're not. When Sherlock asserts that morality supersedes rules, what has he done? He's made a clear black and white moral determination, hasn't he? How obvious can you get? There's no gray about it. And by the way, leading a moral life is a simple undertaking. I've never once in my life had the desire to kill anybody or steal from anybody. It's not that difficult. You know, I don't (laughs) get up in the morning and go, oh, gee, it's going to be hard to keep robbing Robert today. I wonder whether
3: or not they're alluding to what a lot of pragmatists do, or amoralists, and that is what's called lifeboat ethics. yes where they say that, well, you can't live a moral life. Let's say, for example, that there's two of you in a lifeboat in the middle of the Pacific. There's no food. Um, But if you kill the other guy, there's a chance that you would survive. But if you don't kill the other guy, both of you will die. That kind of lifeboat ethics, uh, people point to and say, look, see, there are situations in the world that are gray, that the morality doesn't exist. So therefore, there is no morality at all. And that's
1: wrong. That's you're correct that that's wrong, yes. There could be another reason, though. Why do you think he might say something like that, that, you know, it's really tough, it's not easy to be moral? I think it might have something to do with his cocaine addiction, do you think? Maybe that's what it
3: is. Well, you it, know, there's, there's something to be said for that. As yeah. a matter of fact, I see objectivists discussing on, online quite a lot, um, for example, eating habits. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're getting overweight, and they say that, you know, that if I was to be moral, I would treat my body as a temple type of thing and, you know, try to live as long as I can, but I can't stop eating donuts. Well, and they get fat, and they, they feel that it's immoral. And no,
1: it's not immoral. Again, you know, I think he's made that same error, assuming that an addiction is in and of itself a moral shortcoming. It may be the consequence of one and it may lead to, to moral shortcomings. But many good people have addictions. In fact, mm-hmm. recall we used another Sherlock Holmes example from Jeremy Brett to illustrate that very fact on one of our broadcasts where we discussed moral judgments and the ones may being made about Rob Ford's alcohol issues in Toronto. And and, and uh, everybody saying, well, you know, he's, he's got these moral shortcomings. Well, remember what Holmes said about his cocaine addiction.
3: He said, my mind abhors stagnation. So he was doing it because his sense of life required his mind be active. And if it couldn't be active in one
1: way, he made it active in another. Good observation. You know, that's a a difference between the Jeremy Brett um, interpretation, who used cocaine very consciously Mm -hmm. and purposely, versus this interpretation where he was totally out of control right, and needs to be totally recovered. So in that respect, they've played their roles a little bit differently. And uh, then there is, of course, the uh, he has, uh, when Watson says to him, oh, this person has Ayn Rand quotes on, on his computer, and Sherlock replies, well, she's the philosopher-in-chief to the intellectually bankrupt. Well, nice to meet you, Robert. <laughs> intellectually <laughs> bankrupt. <laughs> you know, at first I thought this was a complete ad hominem attack. But when you consider the comment in the light of Sherlock's moral relativism, the other comments we just heard, it does begin to make a little more sense. Um, But that Sherlock used the word intellectually, you know, intellectually bankrupt, rather than morally, is a bit of yet of another contradiction in his philosophical reasoning and ability to value abstract ideas objectively. Sherlock ain't no Sherlock when it comes to understanding philosophy. But when it comes to practicing it, well, that's another matter. Uh, Now, as we come on this side of the bumper with those audio bites we heard, we hear that he has his books arranged, I thought this was funny, in descending order of academic rigor. (laughs) That way, physics by Aristotle is as far away from you can learn telepathy by Morton Zuckerman as possible. (laughs) That was very funny. (laughs) And Sherlock goes, well, that's reasonable. And I'm going, wow, he actually thought that was reasonable. I wonder if Sherlock knew that Ayn Rand was an Aristotelian whose books should have been sitting right beside Aristotle and also as far away from you-can-learn-telepathy as possible. And she would have felt the same way about Aristotle's position on the shelf. Logic was Rand's forte. And then, of course, we see that uh, he's not just strictly um, evidence-driven. Sherlock refuses, in the, in, the, in the subsequent audio bite refuses to accept evidence of someone's apparent guilt because of his ability to reason how, quote, the invisible hand of the market, end quote, might affect their motivation, right? So he says, no, I'm not going to accept this evidence. I know about the the invisible hand of the market. This doesn't make sense. And of value. He detects a contradiction in the police conclusion. He uses reason, not the evidence at hand, to determine that the evidence itself is misleading, right? The invisible hand of both the marketplace and of reason are guiding his own judgment. So he's acting very, you know, we might say Randian in this sense. But, you know, to be reasonable is not the only
3: hallmark trait of Sherlock Holmes. No, of course. He was written by Conan Doyle, who himself was a supernaturalist and who believed in things like seances and ghosts and contacting the dead and actually participated in things like that. And in some of his stories, Conan Doyle acted on uh, dreams,
1: for example, Mm -hmm.
3: thinking that there was a connection to reality uh, with them. So...
1: But that's still a to be internally
3: problem. consistent with Sherlock Holmes you're going to have to introduce an element of unreasonableness.
1: Well, not to his not to his solving cases. He's never he never solved a case just dreaming about it and whimsically solving it. He always solved them objectively. There's no way around that. True, you know? in the case and where he did solve... A- it's the principles that lead him to his solving <laughs> of his cases that are the things I'm talking about. Okay, you yes, can't mm-hmm. avoid those principles to arrive at a proper conclusion, oh. no matter what you think in your fantasy land or dream. And then finally he says, I like this, my life is not conducive to making myself available every time someone's life is in crisis, he says. And uh, here he is. Sherlock rejects the idea that his life should be the subject of sacrifice to others, particularly when in crisis. Um, and then she goes you do get that no one's life is is you know, no one's life is right she says and uh, of course he's not being asked to sacrifice himself or put himself out for others he's doing it for himself d- due to his own efforts at overcoming his own drug addiction and knowing that others have done the same for him to say nothing of watson who also stays with him for a period without pay for the benefit of herself while helping homes does that make sense so there's my basic overall contradiction you know analysis of the contradictions of Sherlock Holmes. Would you add anything else, or did you see anything in there that I didn't? Uh, <clears throat> I could go on about Sherlock Holmes, but unfortunately we're at a time when yes. we need to break. Well, we'll leave you now with another scene from Sherlock. And uh, this one says, you know, this is from the, again the, uh, the British Sherlock, and uh, basically from the first episode where Watson is being warned to stay away from Sherlock, and for a very interesting reason. Let's listen in, and when we return... Subject will change to the Olympics. He's gone. Is Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, he just took off. He does that. Is he coming back? He didn't look like
0: it. Right. Okay. Right. Yes. Sorry, where am I? Brixton. Right, uh, do you know where I could get a cab? It's just... Uh, well... My leg.
1: Uh, try the main road
0: Thanks
2: but you're not his friend He doesn't have friends So who are you?
0: I'm I'm nobody I just met him
4: Okay, a bit of advice then, stay away from that guy
0: Why?
1: You know why he's here? He's not paid or anything He likes it He gets off on it the weirder the crime, the more it gets up, and you know what? One day just showing up won't be enough. One day we'll be standing around a body and Sherlock Holmes will be the one that put it there.
0: Why would he do that?
1: Because he's a psychopath. Psychopaths get bored. Donovan! Coming! Stay away from Sherlock Holmes.
2: Occupation? Athlete? Amateur. I want that specified. Amateur athlete. Hmm? Do, you, do you have any more traditional occupation as well, Mr. Prito? Oh, no. I used to, but it uh, took too much time away from my training. Uh-huh. What are you training for, Mr. Prito? Isn't it obvious? Decathlon? Mm-hmm. Olympics? 1980? Mm-hmm. If I'm ready. <laughs> Otherwise, 1984. What's your age, Mr. Preeto? I'm 43. I'll save you the trouble, all right? I'm gonna be 45 for the 80 games. I'll be 49 in 1984, huh? Foolish, you're thinking, oh yes, he's lost his mind, he's gone bananas. (laughs) Please save me the trouble because I've heard all of that before, all right? It never crossed my mind. Oh, sure, sure. There've been too many noteworthy accomplishments all over the world from people much older than you are. Yeah. Yeah? That's true. Not too many people are aware of that, you know. That's right. I'll give you an example. Grandma Moses didn't begin painting until she was in her late 70s. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Eamon D. Valera was president of Ireland at the age of 92. Right, exactly. Right. And then there's Senator Strom Thurmond. <laughs> what? He fathered a child at the age of 74. Oh. I guess his only abstentions have been on the floor of the Senate political satire you hear me
3: (laughs) do you you hear me now and that's uh a where this show is all about political satire. That was Barney Miller, of course, and Dietrich.
1: Yeah, that was funny because uh, there was this disconnect between this guy who's so into the Olympics, which is so much a political event. Yes. No, no connection to politics at all. <laughs> Just as an aside, uh, I watched that episode when you told me you were going to drag a
3: clip from it. And uh, to talk about an intellectual character, Dietrich um, was inviting people to a party at his house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the party games, one of the adult party games... Uh, was that, oh yes, you take a, you, you draw a name from a hat of 14th century philosophers, and throughout the conversations of the evening, we have to defi- decide who you are. <laughs> <laughs> and, he's, and he's inviting guys like, Wo Jehovah, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, Olympic Games. <laughs> <laughs> Olympic Games. Um, they were talking about um, a javelin thrower there back in the days when uh, uh, they didn't have all the sports that they do now, but Have there ever been an Olympic Games that you can think of that there hasn't been some controversy of some form? You know, there's actually a... Isn't that what
1: what they they have them for, for the controversy? You'd think so, wouldn't you?
3: Every time they're on, there's something going on. There's actually a website devoted to listing all of the controversies to all of the Olympic Games, and it goes back to 1908, in other words, two games before that. So I don't know how well they were documented, but I'm sure there was controversy then as well. But... Scandals, mm-hmm. terrorism, controversy. It, it's all part of the Olympic event, if you think about it. I'm not a sports fan.
1: Well, let's face it, the eyes of the world are always on those events, and people like to get in front of the camera, don't they?
3: Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, um, the Pussy Riot crew were just recently uh, seen being whipped by a Cossack policeman. Uh, because they were protesting underneath the uh, Olympic banner. <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> <laughs> Funny.
1: Yeah, anybody to, to get attention. but uh, And most recently, here in... I, I heard another radio station report that this morning, and they were afraid to say the name of the group. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, it's just Pussy Riot, a little uh, little yeah, furry cat yeah. and
3: Riot. I mean, what are they talking about? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here at home, we have a controversy somewhat. You had to Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer, Mm -hmm. the figure skaters, both from London, uh, London area, London, um, received a silver medal in the ice dancing competition in Sochi. They were gold medals before that, and they received very low scores from one judge. And that's the subject of controversy uh, when many experts suggested that it was artificially low and and undeserved. Uh, But, you know, such is the nature of subjectively scored competitions. And I really can't get into those kinds of comp- actually I really do enjoy watching them if they're on. I will watch uh ice skating competitions like that the dancing that they're, they're just so unbelievably defy gravity when they when they go about that Ooh. routine but the, but to to say that oh I'm going to root for this one or root for that one when it's all subjectively decided upon
1: takes away some of the, the you fun know, of it we we talked about that off the air before and to me, it seemed that there were certain sports there that almost fell under the classification less of sport and more of art, in a way. Yes. yes. And a, as you get towards art, which would be figure dancing and things like that, it becomes more subjective, doesn't it? Just well, as a certain nature, like you're not scoring specific points in a hockey game where yeah. everybody sees the, the puck going and no one's going to ar- I it's mean, there or not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> again, it comes down to to evidence. <laughs> you know, did, yes. Did you see the puck go in? But nobody's going to argue about. Did it go in? Well, will we give them a score? Or won't we? Yeah, or you will give them a score. As a matter of fact, Ezra right.
3: even commented on that. Says maybe that um, that particular judge didn't like this kind of style. Fair enough, I suppose. Hmm. Um, you know, over the years, though, there, there there have been many political controversies and boycotts, the blatant scoring bias. Like um, uh, when during the Cold War, there was a lot of that going on, where you get the Soviets and the Western uh, countries, if they weren't boycotting the games. Uh, judging unfairly. yes. Um, terrorism, um, death, billions of dollars being of taxpayers' money being spent or flushed down the toilet, sex discrimination, bribery, use of performance-enhancing drugs, all a sideshow to the true spectacle of human glory, which is the Games. Mm-hmm. I can't say that I am a particular fan of the Olympic Games. I don't watch them usually nor most competitive sports for that matter. I just don't get into it. It's not, it's not as a matter of principle or anything like that. It's just a matter of taste in entertainment. I, I don't find that too entertaining to watch sports. It's not the end of the world. So one team will win, one team will lose. Let's move on type of thing. It's not like Sherlock Holmes, which talks about uh, philosophy and ideas and becomes part of the culture. And people can, um, if it endures, people will talk about it for years and years to come. That's different than sports. Sports is going on all the time, winners, lures, losers, and um, there are just a few defining moments that people refer back to, um, to to say that I've been there, I saw that in a sports match. I do recall the seemingly unnatural abilities of athletes like Mark Spitz, for example, in the 72 Olympics. Um, I was only a child at the time, but his name was plastered all over the television for his remarkable accomplishments. I think he got, what, seven golds and set world records in every single competition that he uh, entered to get those golds. And Nadia Comaneci. Do you remember the 76 mm-hmm. Olympics, spot?
1: Well, I don't remember them by year, but I do remember certain names. Well, and, that was Montreal. I'm a lot like you, too, yeah. you know, because um, I'm not a sports person, let's face it. Yeah. That's, no, that's no secret to anybody. <laughs> a matter of fact, a lot of, my, <laughs> of all of my friends, I don't think many of them are sports fans. But then again,
3: we hang around with a rather sort of uh, nerdy, intellectual type of crowd anyway. Uh, but K- Komenichi just fascinated me with her perfect 10 scores uh, in gymnastics. And outside the Olympics, I remember to this day, when Henderson swip, you know, slipped yeah. that puck past um, mm-hmm. um off of um, Esposito uh, for the assist in the 72
1: Canada-Soviet series. Did you see that? <laughs> you know I did, don't you? Huh? That was that was the last hockey game I ever watched in my life. Is that right? Yeah, and, and I was watching it because I was, at the time, I can tell you exactly where I was, at Channel 8 Wingham. Oh, Yeah. And, and uh, we were there on a television radio course on that day. We were touring the station. And uh, everybody broke for the hockey game. And we ah, all sat yeah. there. And so I got to watch it in school. Oh. That's, that's why I ended up watching the game. Everybody stopped to watch that and game. And so it's a day I remember exactly where I was, what I was doing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> where normally it probably would have skipped right by me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, there are moments
3: and it was like fun. that. You know, it, it, but other moments like that. But for the most part, I don't achieve
1: much satisfaction in much you in know, sporting events. You just got me thinking about something about my not watching certain sports. You know, with ice figure skating and things like that. I, li- I like watching it too, and when mm-hmm. I do see them, I mean, I go, "Wow, that's amazing!" But you know, I get this sense of foreboding whenever these events are on, I'm going, oh, especially when it's live, right? I'm going, oh, I don't want to see anything go wrong. I don't want to be here when something goes wrong or somebody mm-hmm. trips or falls. It really bothers me. I know what you mean. And, and it's almost puts me off of watching it. I'd, I'd watch it later after I heard it was perfect. Okay, now I'll watch it. Now I'm comfortable. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's got something to do with it. Maybe that's... There's a lot of uncomfortable feelings uh, when you're watching these sports. For example, in speed skating, live, yeah. if somebody
3: trips in speed gate skating, mm-hmm. okay, you've tripped, you shouldn't have finished, you know... You, you Tough luck for you. But when they trip and fall, a lot of other people trip and fall over him. And to no fault of their own, they can't finish the game and lose because of that. That kind of thing makes me feel really bad for them. Um, You know, what I really uh, take interest, though, in uh, things like the Olympic Games and, and national events or international events is, for example, the politics. When I hear $50 billion being spent by Russia on the Sochi Games, I feel I'm watching a colossal waste of money For what? You know, it's a a bit of entertainment Mm -hmm. to get on the records and all that. $50 billion.
1: Well, I heard a caller on another radio show earlier this week who was over in that part of the country... And had gone through the whole, you know, Ukraine area and all hmm. Soviet area. And he's talking about the poverty there, the abject poverty, sure. people still using outhouses. You can't get water without walking several blocks and filling a bucket and bringing it back. Uh, alcohols, alcoholics all over the place. Um, just a dramatically depressed, pure poverty place. And yet they've spent these billions yeah. on these events. And the contrast, it means bread and circuses all over again, just like we were talking about last week. You know, the uh, uh, International Olympic Committee has never awarded the Games
3: to any African city. And perhaps for good reason, because they can't afford things like this. Or even any South American city. Now, Brazil is going to, of course, get the next one. Well, clearly the Soviet Union can't afford it either, or Russia, rather. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Yeah, the Soviet Union, they shouldn't have given it to them either. Though there was the Moscow Games. But. But the Sochi, that, that's, that, that's a really depressed
1: part of that country. Well, Cuba got the 1991 Pan Am Games that we didn't get here in London, to our good fortune. Pan Am Games, whoever watches <laughs> that anyway. It's not about watching, it's about how much they had to pay, Yeah, I know. you know, to put them on. To tell you the truth, though, the Olympics lost their luster for me when I
3: understood that it was, and this is before 1988 at least, a sport for amateurs. Anyone who made money from their sport was forbidden from competing. To me, this meant that the uh, gold medalists could not rightly claim to be the best in the world at their sport, as those who might have truly beaten their socks off were sidelined for taking pay for their athleticism. This was particularly rankling when we saw the the amateur hockey teams compete against the Soviet Red Army hockey teams during these games. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Everybody was saying, well, the Soviet Red Army, yeah, they're paid as soldiers, but all they do is play hockey. You know, (laughs) it's just so unfair. I know I found this little interesting uh, tidbit online about why only amateurs were allowed to compete. Uh, Quoting here, the ethos of the aristocracy as as exemplified in the English public school greatly influenced Pierre de Coubertin. The public schools subscribed to the belief that sport formed an important part of education, an attitude summed up in the saying, mensana in corpora sano, a sound mind and a sound body. In this ethos, a gentleman was one who became an all-rounder, not the best at any one specific thing. There was also a prevailing concept of fairness in which practicing or training was considered tantamount to cheating. Mm. Those who practiced the sport professionally were considered to have an unfair advantage over those who practiced it merely as a hobby. And this is how the Olympic Games began, was a sort of a gentlemanly sport of all-rounders. You know, let's see how let us see how you can do.
1: Throw the discus there, Giles. You know, maybe that's how they should have. <laughs> why they should have arrested that fellow on Barney Miller because he was practicing, <laughs> and trying to become a professional while insisting he was an amateur. as going against the <laughs> yes. Olympic ethos. Right. You know, I couldn't get around
3: my head, my head around the performance-enhancing drugs either. I don't know what you think about this. Uh, we haven't discussed it, but for one th- for one thing, wouldn't it make sense to take whatever measure one could to enhance their performance? For example, you'd eat it, it a lot. Never of
1: made sense to me, like like eating a good <coughs> food. You right, know? you'd
3: eat a lot of protein to yeah. develop your muscles necessary for weightlifting. For example, why not take steroids
1: to to help build your muscles? Arnold Schwarzenegger used to talk like that all the time, and he used to take them, and he never yeah. never hid hid the fact, and he used to laugh at people. He even had heart surgery later on in life, knowing he was going to have that heart surgery due to his Steroidy. taking the steroids mm-hmm. earlier, and he mm-hmm. went through it, and he said, "Yeah, well, that's I, I expected it." and he went through the whole process. Right?
3: You know, although rules are rules mm-hmm. and any competition should have a level playing field, but I hope perhaps one day to see a competition where the athletes are not prohibited from augmenting their training and diet with modern uh, modern medical marvels to enhance their performance, as long as everyone was allowed to do it of course, mm-hmm. why not allow it? Anyway, let's take a little break. Yeah. And uh, when we come back from these Hogan's Heroes clips, some more great TV, we'll uh, finish off Talk our conversation on, conversation on the
2: Olympics. Yep. Excuse me, gentlemen, you got some smelling salts? Smelling salts? Yeah, your boy battling Bruno's clobbering kinch. Low. Marvelous, get the smelling salts. Yeah, what are you coming well, up? Kinch is supposed to be the sparring partner, not a punching bag. But Bruno's a real killer. And that's the god who will bring the championship to Stalak
5: 13. Hey, Schultz, hurry it up. A killer? I'm glad someone around here is dangerous. I like to see this myself. Come on. Jump!
2: There he is, a uh, general. A great example of a fighting man in action. Hm, what a specimen. Yeah, I wish he was one of ours. <laughs> I meant battling Bruno, not the prisoner. <laughs> he knows that we're here, so he's gonna try and put on a show.
5: Watch out, fair No, no! Come on, get out battling Bruno is showing off all right a lucky blow that's all that general foul I saw it very clearly Foul! No. foul mm.
2: it was an accident doesn't
5: matter and now the news has traveled. A German has been knocked out by an American prisoner of war, and a black American prisoner of war at that. Ah, let the news travel, who cares? It may get to the
2: Führer. <laughs> I care very much, that's who cares. Uh, but surely Hitler wouldn't, I mean, he would.
5: you recall the 1936 Olympics in Berlin? An American, uh, Jesse Owens. Every time he won a gold medal, Hitler left the stadium rather than watch the presentation.
2: But certainly Hitler could not compare that to... One. He'll
5: manage. Don't worry. Surely battling Bruno would not let himself be knocked out again. Yeah, I keep my eyes open, here, Commandant. Yeah, yeah. Not good enough. We must even up the score. It must be known a German can beat an American at anything. Click! Arrange a fight between your champion here and Sergeant Kinchlaw. And Frank Bruno must win. That's an order.
2: Well, I can't guarantee that. But you will.
5: You mean cheat? Don't bother me with details.
3: (laughs) Funny show. I really enjoyed Hogan's Heroes. Back to the Olympic Games, you know, for me, the the worst part of it, and this is going to be a bit of a downer, I'm afraid, is the opportunity it lends for protest, uh, especially to uh, Islamic terrorists, uh, to show their madness. I single out, of course, Islamists Islamists because um, they're primarily the cause of the vast sums of money being spent on security for the Games ever since the Palestinian Black September terrorists murdered members of the Israeli Olympic team in '72. And today in Sochi, the threat from Islamists still exists, as Chechen Islamists have threatened to disrupt the Games in an effort to further their murderous Sharia madness. But we can't stop the world just because a bunch of lunatics want to terrorize us. Life goes on. There's an interesting uh, meme going around social media, I don't know if you've seen it, Bob, of a sign by a protester uh, protesting China's hosting of the Winter Olympics. It read... um, Quote, Would we have allowed Nazi Germany to host the Olympics? <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah, so some might think it's a joke, but apparently it was created by some youthful, ignorant protesters of China's treatment of Tibet who didn't realize that, yes, we actually did allow Nazi Germany to host the Olympic Games in 1936, with Hitler actually presiding over some of the ceremonies.
1: Yes, and everyone was very pro-fascist in those days. It didn't matter which side of the ocean you were on either. It wasn't, and there were a lot of Hitler fans all over the world. Oh, sure, yeah, it wasn't just a lot uh, of anti-Semites yeah. too. Uh, that was uh, de rigueur at the time, I guess, to be anti-Semitic. But
3: and speaking of the '36 games, we had the delicious spectacle of Jesse Owens, a black man, as uh, you know, the most successful athlete of those games. By the way, having won four gold medals. Standing on the rostrum in triumph over the efforts of Hitler's supposed superior race. Yeah, that must have driven them nuts. Yeah, they actually <laughs> did the Nazi salutes. You know, the um, the winners in those games standing yeah. on that uh, rostrum, they stuck out their arm in salute and salute a Nazi salute. Uh, and Owens did a, a re- traditional American salute. You know, uh, hand to to the to his temple, and as well there were the thirteen medalists uh, of the thirty six games who were Jewish. Heaven forbid. <laughs> <laughs> Political spectacle and corruption aside, the most delightful part of the most recent games for me has to be the opening ceremonies. I particularly enjoyed watching Daniel Craig as James Bond accompany the Queen on a parachute jump into the stadium for the 2012 London Games. Did you see that? Yes. Uh, That was was priceless. Uh, The mechanical failure at the opening of the Vancouver Olympics was cleverly... Repaired with assistance of some imaginary ropes and pulleys at the closing ceremonies. Well done. I wasn't aware of that. No? no. Was well, there when a mechanical failure? Yes. Uh, they had these uh, torches, apparently, uh, huge, huge torches in the middle of the field, and uh, they, were, they were being raised in the opening ceremony, right? One didn't want to go up. Okay. It's, it was stuck. Oh, and okay. so, of course, we, everything went on. The show must go on, and, every, and it did. But for the closing ceremonies, they red the, redid that, and when it stuck again, apparently, you had mimes come out there and pretend to pull on pulleys and, and levers and all that and pull it up. So they made light of it. oh and, and in doing so they just it was, it was did uh, they fix it? Uh, well, obviously yes, yeah <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But it was a great moment, yeah. you know those kinds of things, those spectacles, that's
1: what I really like. Well, bread and circuses, right? Spectacle. Doesn't everybody like a spectacle? They certainly do. There's there's nothing wrong with (laughs) liking a spectacle. It's the way that they're being paid for these days (laughs) that's that's
3: objectionable. Well, there's more. Yeah, there's lots of Mm. to object about it. For example, the the fact that uh, communist China. uh, I don't even know if I can use that adjective anymore about China, because it is decreasingly becoming communist. Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. certainly a dictatorship, and a brutal one at that, but there's that spectacle as well. Um, their well, games well, you're saying they're becoming more fascist now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, more like us. Yeah. yeah. But in any case, you had the China games, and that show was phenomenal their opening ceremonies was phenomenal with the fireworks looking like footprints leading going to the stadium and the drums and, and it was just a, a amazing to watch put aside the fact that it is a brutal dictatorship you know and a lot of these people were probably uh, severely treat, uh, treated if they didn't do things pr- properly but um, that that aside it was a spectacle They just keep getting better and better, I think. Uh, Unfortunately, they cost so much money, usually, almost always, taxpayers' money. I think the L.A. games
1: are the only ones that broke even or made a profit. Um, Um, But in the end... And the Russians condemn the Americans for making money at it.
3: Well, of course, (laughs) that's what Russians do. But in the end, it's all about the athletes, and we can't forget that, and the motto of the Olympics, uh, sitius, altius, fortius, Mm. faster, higher, stronger, and the drive to be the best. And regardless... If you're a sports fan or not, that's the motto everyone should be able to appreciate, and I know I do. And by the way, I think this is probably the last show that we'll ever talk about sports.
1: <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I, I would never say never, but, you know, you say it's all about the athletes. I contest that when it comes to the Olympics. I don't think it's about athletes at all. Really? No, I think it's about the countries. And when people say, well, don't bring any politics into it, I'm going, Hello. It's country versus country. That's what the point is. It's Germany defeating France. It's completely nationalistic nationalistic from top to bottom. So to say you want to take (laughs) politics out of it is an absurdity. If it was really athletes competing with athletes, countries wouldn't even enter into it. There wouldn't be a nationality attached to anyone's name. Mm -hmm. And yet we have this collective pride in a single individual's accomplishment that we all put upon ourselves as though we earned it too, which is not the case. Yes. We might have paid for it in some way. Pride, taxes, pride is not a, a word I would use to describe the actions of another
3: person. It's a word that I would use to describe admiration. my own actions. Uh, I can certainly admire.
1: Yeah, No, but yes. you can admire... Um, the athletes of the other countries as well. Oh, of course. You know? And you don't have to feel a loss because uh, a Russian athlete won over an American or a Canadian one, unless there's something very unfair about it. But you know, no. Uh, in and of itself, I think it's a it's it's a. The Olympics are a political event. That happen to have a sports wrapping around them, and I think that's <laughs> kind of what they are, really. That's my. It's interpretation. interesting. I of would them. say that they're a sporting event with a political wrapping around them. Okay, it all depends on how you're looking at it, I suppose. I guess we can agree to disagree on something finally, right? Okay. Okay. Let's leave it at that, and we'll go for another week. Join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Colour it to black and white Under the clothes, Everything will be ah, Bruno. you're looking very good yeah,
2: Dunker Commandant Now, your orders are to knock out Sergeant Kinslow in the first round <laughs> That'll teach them a lesson about German superiority First round, sir? I don't know if Now, I, uh, can... I have something here that will ensure a first round knockout now, you will place these insurance policies in your gloves. But, Herr Commandant, this is cheating.
5: Sure, all is fair in war. Herr Commandant, the sergeant of the Luftwaffe, the man of honor, I object.
2: Would you also object as a private in the Luftwaffe, huh? This is going to be a terrific fight. <laughs> right. right, right, right.